From Mark 15, starting at verse 25. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by deride him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see him and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to him and take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that it was this way and that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking from a distance. Among were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he took courage, and he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him, whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was indeed dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, he wrapped him in this linen and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of rock. He rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And so the story ends, or at least that had been human experience up to this point. We marvel at the evil of the men who nailed him to the cross, who condemned him, who beat him, as if he was the lowest form of criminal rather than the son of God. We take some comfort in the faith of the women at the foot of the cross, at John's faithfulness, and at Joseph of Arimathea and his courage as he claims the body of Jesus. But we're still left in that story with a cold body wrapped in cloth and herbs lying on a shelf in a cold cave. We're left with a rock slammed into position, sealed by a Roman governor, guarded by armed men in the middle of the night, 
We are left in the cold and the dark with a huge void in our lives and in the earth. For we are watching the death of a friend, of a God, and of the dreams of all of those who were standing there. We know about death. We buy insurance so that our passing is not more painful than it absolutely has to be. The Bible says it is given to man once to die, and after that, the judgment. The scripture also tells us why we have to die. In John chapter, 1 John chapter 1, we'll go there. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Romans then says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have sinned. There is a price to pay for that. You see, when we sin, we are releasing evil into the world, more and more evil into the world. And once it's out there, we are powerless to call it back, to make it right. We're just people. We can't do that. Every person before Jesus who died stayed dead, except for a few interesting exceptions. Even those raised from the dead died again later. And then we have Enoch and Elijah, who just took the bypass around and just went straight to God. The latter hitching a ride on the sweet chariot that swung low to take him home. But something new is about to happen. Today is a lesson in absolutes and exceptions. It is absolute that we have all sinned and will therefore given to man once to die. But there are exceptions. And as we look at Easter, we are looking at the greatest, most enormous exception of all. But nobody here knew that. Something new is about to happen. They had not been to an Easter service. This story had not yet come to the earth. No one standing around the locked and sealed grave knows what's about to happen. That a new reality is on its way. The world will never be the same. A new world is coming to the disciples, to the women at the cross, and even to the men who beat Jesus, the ones who hammered the nails. A massive exception is about to take place, and everything, everything will be changed forever. When we move from the sections of sermon to singing, we will always stand. So let's stand as we sing. This is not a movie. It's not a feel-good story at this point. One of the things that I really admire about Scripture is how real it is about humans and our reactions. Scripture does not show us believers shaking their fist at the Romans and the leaders of the religious world, saying, you just wait, this isn't over. No. It shows them slipping along little traveled pathways in the early light of dawn, of hiding in locked rooms, of trying to stay anonymous and hidden even when others are sure that they recognize them. They were scared. They were confused. They were in grief, not only at the death of their friend, but at the death of their movement, their dreams, their certainty. They would have wondered, 
was, was he really the Christ? Were we fooled? How, how could we have gotten this so wrong? I imagine the hushed, whispered arguments among them would have been quite intense. Others would have just huddled in the dark and cried. And who could blame them? They'd left everything for Jesus. They had put all of their chips on one spin of the wheel, and they had lost. People would have searched, because people do, for a scapegoat, for someone to blame. Did he decide to give up on us, or was it your fault? Or was it your fault? Who made him decide not to follow through with the plan? Was it our, our lack of faith? Was it our silly arguments that we kept having that didn't interest him at all? Did he give up because of that? I think of Peter in particular. Jesus once asked his disciples if they would leave him. Peter said, if, if we leave you, where would we go? And all at once, the question's not a rhetorical one. All at once, this is not a subjunctive, perhaps this could occur in the future. It is their present reality, a thudding, harsh, sharp-edged reality. I, I hope that some kept their hope alive, believing that this was not the end of the story. I readily admit I would not have been one of them. I'm one of those that would have trusted my disappointment and trusted my eyes and trusted my experience and disbelieved his words. So I admire anyone who could have kept their faith going during these dark days. Faith is not hard for most of us this morning. It might be the cloudiest Easter for a while. It might be the coldest Easter for a while. But we still believe in Easter and we have a nice warm place to come into and sit among others and sing our songs. We know the rest of the story. As Paul Harvey used to say long, long ago, some of them are really hope, kept their eyes on Jesus, surrendering to God and taking their eyes off their own pain and their own circumstance. They would have been real heroes, but like all real heroes, they wouldn't have felt like one. And they wouldn't have known really what to say to anybody else. The question before them will come to each of us one day. If it has not come already in your life, one time, two times, a hundred times. Can we trust God when all of the evidence seems to point in the other direction? Let's stand. When it comes down to it, you could define Christ as he is the enormous exception in history. All have sinned except him. All who died stayed dead, except when they were raised to life only to die later, or they left the planet not to return. But Jesus died, came back to life, and returned, and will return yet again. We don't know where you are. That's one of the hard things for a minister, and I, I'm not trying to invoke any sympathy. I think ministry is a fantastic job, and no complaint there. But as we prepare lessons, we're aware that everybody in the group is in a different place. Some of you are ready to put on Easter finery and enjoy. I even found a pink check shirt and decided not to question my manhood, but sling it on. But cover the most of it up. 
Some of you might feel more like wearing dark colors of mourning because I don't know where you are. We're all going to be faced with moments that try our faith. We need to remember that. And that while there are absolutes in our lives and day-to-day reality, there's a larger force out there which is not limited by what we see and experience. God is the enormous exception who will not be bound by our rules or by nature's rules. In Revelation chapter 12, as part of the vision, John the Revelator writes, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and seven horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Jesus will reign. This is one of those things that God asks us to do. Will we believe in the darkness? Even when it's dark and cold, will we believe when the stone seals the cave? Will we believe the next day when no good news is coming? Will we wake on the next day still with faith? He told his followers that if somebody pulled the temple down and he was referring to his own body, he would rise it up back in three days, and so he did. When he came back, he found followers who had once bragged of their faith and courage now cowering in locked rooms. He saw faces stained and swollen with tears, foreheads creased and angry frowns. He even asked once in Luke 18.8, when a son of man returns, will he find faith on the earth? So we failed him. We did. Put it out there on the table. So what's his reaction going to be? Well, here's the thing. Jesus is absolute. His character, his attitude do not change. He does not react to us and become something different. Our actions, our reactions, our faith, our lack of faith, our anger, our joy, they do not change who Jesus is. God is love. And that is who he is. And that is what he is. And that is forever. There is no better news than that. No better news. One of the reasons why this church, this congregation, decided years ago that it would be known not for its liturgy, not for its worship style, not for this or that piece of the doctrine, but rather by its love and faith and prayer is because of this story. We want to look like who Jesus is. He spoke softly with gentleness to the men who were walking away on the road to Emmaus. He spoke with love and tenderness to the women crying at the grave. He told the disciples behind the stout door that they could open the door. There wasn't anything to worry about now. 
He showed him his scars. I always find that interesting. He could have come back with a pristine, clean body, but no, he chose to keep the scars. Paul would later say, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus, referring to his scars. Jesus walks this road with us. Jesus is love. And fear is no longer part of the equation. Neither is death. I mean, fear is going to happen and death's going to happen. There are absolutes. But is death an absolute anymore? No. Jesus is the absolute. Our God is God. And he is who he says he is. He is the unchangeable one. We cannot force him outside his person and character. As I have told more than one person in my life, God loves you, deal with it. We do not have to carry about with us the stink of our failure, the loss of our faith, the pain of our disappointing him, because he loves us That is who he is. And when he came back and found us in a locked room, he did not tisk or tut at us. He opened his arms and welcomed us. Let's stand and sing. We're a funny folk. We hear weather reports and we adjust our plans accordingly. I remember all the times we spent 10 years in Michigan And all those times I would drive by snowy, blustery hills and see people doing a sunrise service. That wasn't a part of our tradition, and I was always very glad on those days. But I saw some notices this year down here saying, if it's like it's supposed to be, our sunrise service will be done via video and we'll be inside. Only makes sense. We adjust. We hear traffic reports, so we open up the Waze app and we see... Maybe we need to take a different road. We should also make some very serious adjustments in our life because of the fact Jesus loves us and he has removed fear and death from the equation. You may not feel it, but you don't have to feel a fact for a fact to be a fact. Jesus has removed it. In a moment, Lauren King will call us to the table Well, I'll work you through what happens today. But as we take the bread and the cup today, please remember, your body may die, but you're not going to stay dead. You will not be separated from God for a second. You will go from this to better, never to worse, because God is God and God has promised. If you're a visitor here, you might be wondering, what's with the ugly crosses? Well, and why more than one? Well, it's, there are a couple reasons. Traffic flow is why more than one, frankly. And the ugly is because death is ugly. It steals from us. It breaks our heart. It disrupts our plans. It kills our dreams. And so Jesus breaks into life. And every Easter, to illustrate this, we bring out the crosses the week before. And on this day... We'll stand in a bet. There'll be a prayer by Lauren, and then people will come forward. And you'll notice they'll take the communion, but they'll also put a flower, weaving it into the cross. There are baskets there, and you can go now if you want to. Uh, There are are baskets there. If you didn't bring a flower, we've always got far more flowers than we need. Also, there's something else I want you to know about Jesus. Jesus treats people as sacred, 
but not things. So if you want to take a picture, take a picture. If you want to laugh and hug somebody, wouldn't you do that? At the re- if you saw the risen Lord, would you just sit back and go, oh, okay, that was, that's kind of nice. When's lunch? Probably there'd be a bit of excitement and joy. Now, some of you are used to a very solemn communion, and I'll tell you that that's a very meaningful event. It really is. But today's not the day for solemnity. This will take a while. There are trays in the, the tables in the back with the bread to remind us of the body of Christ and, and the cup of grape juice to remind us of the blood of Christ. But make your way to one of these two, and there's one up top this time because we found people could, up there couldn't get through the crowd down here. So we wanted to take care of them as well. We give because we can let go of things. This world is not our home. We gather at the table knowing that we can declare our faith and loyalty only to the one who is the enormous exception in all of history, the one who will never change, the one who will never forsake us, never walk away from us. Live a life that says you no longer believe in this world. Instead, you believe in the one that made it. Live a life that looks to heaven and believes, regardless of whatever evidence to the contrary that the world digs up to throw at you, you believe. I have good news. The grave is open. Christ is risen. Death is optional. Eternity is not. Live accordingly. Lauren? Um, Growing up on Easter, my sisters and I would always wear matching dresses. And this happened until I was like eight or nine, which don't feel too sorry for me. My sister was like 10 years older than me. So she was doing this like 18 and 19. And we have these bright colors in these flowers. And I look around the room today and see so many bright colors and flowers and all of these happy things. Um, My friend and I last week were talking about how last week was Holy Week. Yet it had been a really tough week for her. And she's like, it doesn't feel like a super holy week to me right now. And I'm not naive enough to believe that even though there's tons of flowers and bright colors around us today, that there's not a lot of us coming to the table today bringing pain and trials and heartbreak. And even those of us who have experienced death, that maybe this is the first Easter without a loved one. And and I think of these songs that we've sung saying, he conquered the sting of death and we're singing this. And for those of you that come to this morning with trials and some of that pain, How much more can you understand that inkling of how intense this death was? And then how much more of a parallel do you have of this rejoicing to maximize this understanding of a resurrection, of that death being flopped over and risen? I think of Lent. A lot of the students and I'm sure some others in our congregation for the past 40 days have been giving up something. Maybe something that's painful to give up for 40 days. And today that changes. Today we step into a place that says, he is risen. And that doesn't necessarily make our trials easy by any means. But it does give us hope in a Savior that is alive. And in James we're told, says that is good. Every good and perfect gift. So today, regardless of where you're sitting, where maybe you're enjoying the flowers and the happy and the colors, and maybe you're sitting here bringing a little bit more pain, we all get to rejoice in this alive Savior that came and really did conquer death. We've been singing that. So as you come to the table today 
And as you put your flower in, my prayer is that we really experience the hope that comes with a Savior that lives. Pray with me. Father, you are good. You are so good. And we're glad that you're good because sometimes in this world, there's some not so great things around us and we need you. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. What a sacred and special name. God, we come to you with lots of different things on our hearts. But Father, today we rejoice in your son that is alive and that truly has conquered death. God, as we go on, not just throughout today, but on to this week and this month and throughout our lives, Father, let us learn to live in the love that is alive in a Savior. God, help us to show others more of that love. Let today be a shifting point, maybe for some where we truly realize that you are alive and well. God, as we come and we take a part in this communion, this holy moment, Father, I ask for divine encounters all over this room in the name of your son, Jesus, that it just floods this room and that conversation is just good like you. Father, keep us close to you and let us learn more about you today. In the name of your wonderful son, Jesus, we all say together.